In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Uh, tonight, we will continue our Bible study from the Gospel of St. Matthew, chapter 25, starting from verse 24 to the end of the chapter. As you know, chapter 24 of the Gospel of St. Matthew, the Lord spoke about the end of the world and the instruction that he gave us to be watchful. Then chapter 25, the Lord gave us two parables. These parables are not like the parables in Matthew chapter 13 that speak about the kingdom of heaven on earth. But these parables are about the judgment day, the end of the world and the judgment day. The first parable is the parable of the ten virgins, the wise and the foolish virgins. And how the wise, because they were ready for the coming of the bridegroom, they entered with him into the wedding. But the foolish, actually the door was shut and they did not enter into the kingdom of heaven. So the purpose of this uh, parable, again, to be watchful, to be ready, because we do not know when the bridegroom will come. While we are children, or while we are youth, or while we are adult, or in our old age. The second parable is called the parable of the talents, in which actually the master gave one person five talents, the other person two talents, and the third person one talent. Those who received five and two, they actually uh, traded the talent, worked very hard, they were wise and faithful stewards, and they were able to make profit. The one who actually took five talents, he made profit exactly the same, another five talents. And the one who received the two talents also, he made profits other two talents. And the Lord told them, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. And the purpose of this parable that on the judgment day, God will question us about the talents, the gifts that we received from him, how we used them, whether we used them wisely and faithfully or not, whether we're able to make profit with the talents or not. The third one who took one talent, unfortunately, he hid it. He did not use it. He did not make profit with it. So, let us see how the master would judge this person. Especially this person 
has his own reasons why he hid the talent and why he did not make profit with it. So let's read starting from verse 24. Then he who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew I knew you to be a hard man reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed and I was afraid and went and hid your talent in the ground look there you have what is yours let us analyze the response of this servant he admitted that he knew what God required for those in covenant with him he admitted that he knew that God is expecting profit from him but he neglected his gift and making excuse for himself that if he buried the gift actually at least he will not lose the gift then when the master comes he will give him the gift exactly like how he received it from him and in this way he believed that he could not fail so he told him there you have what is yours there you have what's yours he again acknowledges that the gifts he had were not his own but his masters and all of us we should recognize this that any gift or talent we have in our life is not ours it belongs to God we are just the stewards we are not owners of the gifts but we are stewards of the gift and then this servant had wrong perception about God he told him you know I know that you are a hard man reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed so you reap while you did not you have not sown and you gather while you did not scatter any seed that's why he had kept them as he had received them as if he said why you are taking what's not yours why should I work hard and make profit and then you take it no I will give you what you give me you give me one talent I will give you one talent so this person refused to make any profit and he hoped that God will not require from him more than what he gave him 
but it is not sufficient to retain what is given. We need to understand when God gives us talent, He gives us talent in order to use it for His own glory, in order to make profit with this talent. As we read in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 10, as each one has received a gift, minister it to one another. Minister it to one another means serve one another with this gift. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another. As good steward of the manifold grace of God. As good steward of the manifold grace of God. So God is expecting from us to use the talent to improve the talent and to make profit with the talent, to serve one another with this talent. Also, you can see in the answer of this servant, there is a degree of rudeness in these words. He attacked the master, you are hard one, you are reaping what you, you have not sown, and you are gathering what you have not scattered. Uh, and also, this person indicated that he hid the talent in the earth, in such a place, and there it was, where he hid the talent. And said to God, you know, you can take it. If you read carefully verse 25, he did not bring the talent with him, but he told him, I hid your talent in the ground. Look, there you have what's yours. Go and get it from where I hid it. So, the perception here that uh, He is, he, he is a lazy one. He doesn't even want to bring the talent back. If you, he said to the Lord, if you want to get it, go and get it. Here it is hidden here. Go and get it. What is the sin of this servant? It is laziness, idleness. And why he was lazy and why he was idle? It's either because of his wrong perception of the master, that's why he became lazy and idle, or the opposite is true. Maybe because of he, he is a lazy person, so he tried to justify his laziness by making excuse about how the master is hard reaping what he have not sown. So God usually, in the view of the sinners is hard, cruel, unjust, wrong perception about God. They perceive that the service of God is extremely hard, especially in their mind or in their perception, God adopts or rejects, reward or punish as he pleases as it pleases God. So there is no fairness here. If God is happy to reward somebody, he will reward him. 
If you want to punish somebody, he will punish him. If you want to accept somebody, he would accept him. If you want to reject somebody, he rejects him. And another wrong perception about God is that God actually distributed heavier burdens than what we can endure. The word hard, you are hard. You are expecting from me to work hard. And you put a heavy burden on me. And you want me to make profit for you. Although he received only one talent. Not like the other person who received five talents. Uh, so why God make up this parable? Why God actually made this parable? What's the purpose? The purpose of this parable to show us that no one is excused for neglecting his duty because he has few talents. So if God gives you any talent, you need to use it. God will not excuse you if you don't use your talent for his glory. God will require of us according to our own ability. God will require of us according to our own ability. Second Corinthians chapter 8 we read in verse uh, 12 for if there is first a willing mind, if you have a willing mind, it is accepted according to what one has. If you have the will, God will accept your offer according what you have, according to your own ability, and not according to what he does not have. God will never ask you why you did not give him what you do not have. So God actually is expecting from you to make profit according to your own ability. According to your own ability. God will not ask from you more than what you can have. The wickedness of the servant is demonstrated not only by his unfaithfulness but also by his false and malicious excuses and false accusation of the master. This servant knew the scope of God's call to salvation. He was one of the believers who received talent from God, but ignored his obligation to help with the harvest. Although he knew that God wants everybody to be saved, but he did not do his part in preaching the word of God or using his talent to bring the people to the knowledge of God. 
But his Lord answered and said to him, You wicked and lazy servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown, and gather where I have not scattered seed. So you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers, and at my coming I would have received back my own with interest. So he told him, if that's your perception with me, about me, that I am hard, actually I'm reaping what I have not sown. He told him, actually, instead of coming with zero profit, maybe it would be better to put the talent like in the bank, to bear any kind of interest to put my money with the bankers. So at least when I come, you will bring the money with the interest and give it to me without you making any profit, without you making any work. Why the Lord is saying here? The Lord is telling him, even if you are lazy and you don't want to work, Actually, you were able to make profit if you put the money with the bankers. But the problem, actually, you don't or you refuse to give me any profit. You refuse to give me any glory. That's why, beside his laziness, he called him wicked. You wicked and lazy servant. So, if I am exactly as you supposed me to be, you ought at least to have put my money to use with the money bankers, that it might have earned some profit. He told him, I give you this talent for a certain purpose. And the purpose is to make profit for the glory of God. And because you did not use the talent for the purpose, but rather you hid it, I will take the talent from you and give it to another person. As we read in verse 28, Therefore, therefore, because he did not use the talent, take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given. And he will have abundance. But but from him who does not have, actually, even what he has will be taken away. Like, if you are a businessman and you have many, many, many stores, and you appointed a manager to run some of these stores, one manager over five stores, another manager over two stores, and another manager over one store. Then the one, the manager over one store, he closed the store completely. And then, at the time of accountability, he told you, I closed the store. Take it. Here is your store. 
Of course, you will not entrust him to continue to be the manager. You will take this store and most probably you will give it to the one who made the uh, largest profit. The one who traded with the five talents and was able to make other five talents. That's what the Lord meant when he said, He who has more will be given. But from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. This reminds me with what's written in the book of Genesis before the flood. When the Lord said, my spirit will not always strive with man. Strive means struggling with me. If the Spirit of God within me try to encourage me to do what's right, motivate me, rebuke me, convict me, but I am all the time is opposing the Spirit of God, resisting the Spirit of God. So God may reach a moment in which He would say, my Spirit will not always strive with this person. There comes a time when, when a person is willfully resisted and did not use the gift of God, the Spirit of God will be quenched in this person and the Spirit of God will cease to inspire and influence. That's why we pray in the third hour of the Agbeya. Take not your Holy Spirit away from me. Be patient with me, God, and don't take your Holy Spirit away from me. So in the parable of the ten virgins, God said nothing about their working while they were waiting for the bridegroom. In this parable, God actually sets forth that side of the duties of the servants in the master's absence. God spoke about our duties in the absence of God when he ascended to heaven. Our duties to make profit. So these two parables complete and complement one another. And here God is promising those who use their spiritual gift to serve the church and to advance the kingdom of God they will receive more gifts to enrich their lives in the service of God. So when you are faithful and you are using your spiritual gift and making profit, God will entrust you with more gifts for the glory of God. While those who neglect their spiritual gifts will lose what they were initially given. And we need to remember that God will never require of us more than what he has enabled us to perform. God will never ask from us more than what we can do. All those who neglect to do good are punished with greatest severity. Ten. All those who neglect to do good are punished with the greatest severity. Uh, that's why we should not let 
our talent idle or not making any profit. What was the punishment? Verse 30, and cast the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Weeping and gnashing of teeth is a term that St. Matthew has used several times, like in chapter 8, chapter 13, chapter 22, chapter 24, chapter 25. This expression, weeping and gnashing of teeth, clearly describes the frustration and anguish felt by those souls who have been, through their own sins, excluded from the Master's joy in the kingdom of heaven. So, this term, weeping and gnashing of teeth, demonstrates to us the miserable situation, the anguish, the frustration of those who neglected their talents. Compare what God said to this servant, the lazy and wicked, with the fate of the faithful servant. When God said to them, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over few things. I will appoint you over many things. God concluded these two parables with a description of that awful day, day of judgment, which is to succeed the final judgment and which will steadfastly fix our dwelling either in eternal happiness or eternal misery. After the punishment, those who are on the right hand of God will go to the eternal happiness and the people on his left hand will go to eternal misery. So to summarize the spiritual meaning of the parable, number one, the servants of God are not all gifted with equal talents. One received five, one received two, one received one. So we receive different talents from God. Number two, all, whatever may be their ability, all of us are bound to employ their talents in promoting God's honor and in proper improvement of our brethren. So all of us, regardless how many talents you received, you need to use the talent for the glory of God and serve one another. Number three, there, they, us, will be judged according to the improvement which they have made. What influence you have on others? Did you make profit or not? And the last point, all sinners look on God as hard master unreasonable master, oppressive master. All sinners perceive God in such bad way. Number five, people will be judged not merely for doing something wrong, but for neglecting to do right. This person, the Lord did not tell him, you committed adultery or you are fornicator. No, no, no. He actually punished him because he neglected to do what is right. He neglected to do what is right. And the 
Last point. If the servant who kept the talent entire without harming it and who returned it back to his master as he received it was nevertheless judged, contempt, and cast away. What must they expect who abuse their talents? You understand what I'm saying? This person who kept the talent as is was punished. What about the people who actually use, abuse their talent and destroy the talent? And may they lose the talent because of drunkenness, lust, sin, immorality. So we can say that those will be exposed to a severer punishment, to a severer punishment on the last day. In the same way, if the careless virgin and the unprofitable servant, careless virgin because they were not careful enough to have oil, an unprofitable servant, he did not lose the talent, just he had it. If against these two types, no obvious iniquity is charged. God did not say about them they were fornicators or adulterers, but they were punished with an outer darkness, with a hell of fire. What kind of punishment must he be judged worthy who is a murderer, adulterer, a fornicator, a blasphemer, a thief, a liar, or in any respect, an open violator to the law of God. What kind of punishment he would expect. The Lord Jesus Christ concluded his homily, sorry, his homily about the last days and the end of the times. And after these two parables, he concluded his homily with a vision of the last judgment when the Son of Man judge all the people of every nation on the earth. This is the same exact vision that Prophet Daniel witnessed. We can read it in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, when God was seated on his throne and judged the world in righteousness. At the end of the time, Christ will return in glory as he has promised us. And his return will be signal for the resurrection of the dead that will be followed by the last judgment. So when he comes, the dead will arise and the righteous will be caught up on the clouds to meet the Lord and then the last judgment. Let's read from verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, because they are his servants, then he will sit on the throne of glory. He will sit on the throne of glory. The throne of glory uh, for an account 
of the great white throne upon which sat the divine judge from whose face heaven and earth fled away. You can read this in Revelation chapter 20 verse 11. So we read about this throne of glory. We read about it in Revelation 20 verse 11. As St. John saw great white throne upon which sat the judgment, the judge of the whole earth, and from whose face, the face of God, of Christ, heaven and earth fled away. Heaven and earth fled away. In Matthew, sorry, in John chapter 5, John spoke about the second coming of Christ when he said, The hour is coming in which all those who are in tombs will hear his voice. Those who did good will be risen into the resurrection of life, and those who did evil will be raised into the resurrection of damnation. Then verse 32, all the nations will be gathered before him, all the nations, and he will separate them one from another, as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left hand. These two classes, the sheep and goat, are mingled together on earth. Every nation, country, town, city has its wicked as well as its righteous. Even in the church, we have people who are not godly and people who are godly. But in the judgment day, once God separates them, they will be separated forever. Here, the shepherd, the image of the shepherd is different from the image of the shepherd in in John chapter 10. In John chapter 10, we read about the good shepherd who is protective, self-sacrificing, who is loving, compassionate, kind. But here on the judgment day, the shepherd actually is executing sentence of judgment, which involves separation between the good and the sheep. And here, right hand and left hand are used. According to the laws, of what we might almost call a natural symbolism. In natural symbolism, usually the right hand represents what's good, left hand represents what's evil, right hand represents acceptance, left hand represents rejection. He called the righteous his sheep. Because the sheep are innocent, harmless. And they made him on his right hand, indicating uh, they will be honored because they are righteous. But on his left hand, he called them goats. Because goats are naturally difficult, lustful, excessive. 
they are ill sentient and considered symbols of rebellion, profane, and impure men. So, the goat represented those who lived and died in their sins, rejecting God, not submitting to His will. Left hand on his left side, as I told, left hand represents, you know, place of dishonor, place of punishment. Uh, and here the shepherd is also the king of the world, is also the judge of the world. Verse 34, then the king will say to those on his right hand, here the Lord switched from the word shepherd to the word king. He is our shepherd and he is our king. Why the Lord used the word king here? Because now as a king he will judge and he will take the people, the godly people into his kingdom. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So this kingdom is prepared for us. And God prepared the kingdom for us even before the foundation of the world. Why? He told them, For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Uh, maybe this is the only time the Lord applies the term king to himself. Although he speaks about the kingdom and he declares that when he speaks about his kingdom, this implies that he is a king, but this is maybe the only time he explicitly said about himself the king. The Lord Jesus Christ is the king of Zion, the church, is the king of universe, and now he is the king of judgment. He will judge the whole world. A, judge, a judgment, his majesty will be acknowledged by the whole universe, by every nation, not only by the believers. He said to the sheep, you are blessed, blessed of my fathers. The blessed are now to enter into an inheritance, to enter the kingdom of God. On earth they were heirs and joint heirs with Christ, but on the judgment day they will go and receive this inheritance. The kingdom of glory is designed for those who have received the blessing of the Father, blessed of my Father, who were holy, innocent, undefiled, and separated from the sinners. So, if we truly love the Lord Jesus Christ, we'll express the love we have for God by acts of compassion to those in need of love and compassion, 
to the hungry, to the thirsty, to the sick, to the naked, to the prisoners. And here we can see how the Lord Jesus Christ identifies himself with the poor. He said, whatever you did with my little brethren, you did it with me. So he identified himself with the poor and oppressed and makes the Christian outpouring of active love toward those who suffer a condition for entering his kingdom. A condition to do charitable deeds is a condition to enter into the kingdom of God. St. Augustine said, these works of mercy prevail toward everlasting life. This words of mercy prevails toward everlasting life. By setting forth to all the world the good works of his faithful servant, the, the Lord God silenced the murmurs of the, the murmurs of the wicked who might otherwise object that it was not in their power to do good. By God saying before everybody, these people on my right hand fed the hungry, gave drink to the thirsty, visited the sick, uh, visited the prisoners, closed the naked. Actually, now by, by, by exposing their good deeds, he is put to silence all the people, the complainers, who may say, you know, it is beyond our ability. So we can say the conduct of the wise virgins was the condemnation of the foolish one. The diligence of the faithful steward was the condemnation of the laziness and drunkenness of the idle servant. In the same way, the zeal of the sheep who multiplied the talent entrusted to them was a condemnation of him who hid his talent. And here the zeal of these sheep in doing all this righteous act will condemn those who did not do the righteous acts and charitable works in their life. St. John Chrysostom has a very, very nice comment on this word. He said it should be noted that the duties named are such duties as everyone can perform. Anyone can give sandwich to a hungry person. Anyone can give a cup of water to a thirsty person. Anyone can visit a person who is sick. Anyone can visit a person who is in prison. That's why St. John Chrysostom said, Christ did not say, I was sick and you healed me. No, he did not say, I was sick and you healed me. He said, I was sick and you visited me. He did not say, I was in prison and you set me free. This is not in our ability. But he said, I was in prison and you visited me. You visited me and you came to me. It is in our ability. Then actually, Verse 37, Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in, 
or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly I say to you, in as much as you did it to one of the least of these brethren, you did it to me. Their answer is indicative of humility. They were serving others, but uh, they did not think that what they did is worthy of praise. So there is a deep sense here of their being unworthy such uh, comment from Christ. That's why they said to him, why you are saying this about us? They felt that their poor act of kindness have come so far short of what they should have been that they have no claim of praise or reward. His, they, they said, or what we did is considered nothing. So why are you praising us? Why are you commending us? We did nothing. We did nothing from what we supposed to do. Christ told them, whatever you did to these little ones, so everything which is done to a follower of Christ, whether it is good or evil, as if it is done to Christ himself. If we neglect the poor and needy as if we neglected Christ, if we honor the poor and needy as if we honored Christ. Christ identified himself even with his, also with his church. Do you know when he appeared to St. Paul, he did not tell him, why do you persecute my people? He said, why do you persecute me? Why do you persecute me? The saved are the righteous, or those whose sins have been washed away by Christ in the sacraments of the church, and those who lived and acted in the name of Christ, and were obedient to his will. They have been full of love for Christ, that's why they faithfully served one another, especially the distressed and the oppressed. The love of Christ implies love of the brethren and of all mankind. If I love God, then definitely this love should be expressed to our brethren. Then, verse 41, then he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed. The first group, he told them, you blessed. Here you cursed. And the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. I want you to notice he did not say prepared for you. When he spoke about the kingdom, he said prepared for you before the foundation of the world. But here he said prepared for the devil and his soldiers. So... Uh, he spoke here about these people are cursed. He spoke about everlasting fire prepared not for them, but for the demons. But unfortunately, these people, by their own free will, choose to cast themselves into the lake of fire. They must therefore look upon themselves as the author of their misery and suffering. 
they should not blame God because they brought it on themselves. Those who have turned away from God shall be turned away from Him forever, everlasting life, everlasting life. So this punishment is everlasting exile from His presence. Uh, why? The reason of this awful fate was given. He told them, I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not take me in. Uh, naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. That is the reason. Certainly these people were believers but they did not attend to good works. Faith alone is dead faith. Faith without works is dead. Faith not working by charity could not bring salvation upon us. The judgment of the wicked is pronounced, nor for what they have done wrong, but for what they have neglected. The Lord did not tell them, Depart from me because you are fornicators, adulterers. No, just because neglecting to do what is right. Again, Christ assures us that a man who is hungry, thirsty, naked is his representative. And whatever we do to such person, actually as if we do it to Christ himself. They, then they also, verse 44, will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or, a or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, Assuredly I say to you, and as much as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And this will go away into everlasting punishment but the righteous into eternal life. Uh, so he will be just when he judges the righteous and when he punishes. So God is judge. He's just when he judges and righteous when he punishes. There is some people who believe that the punishment is temporary punishment. It will have an end. But this opinion is completely wrong. Because at the time of judgment, God separated between the sheep and the good, the righteous and the wicked. And he said the righteous will inherit the kingdom of God and the wicked will depart into everlasting fire. The state of the righteous is eternal life. The state of the wicked, everlasting punishment. So the duration is the same. Eternal life, eternal punishment. So the duration is the same. And in the Greek language, the word eternal, everlasting was the same here and there. So if the punishment has an end, also the eternal life should have an end too. If the punishment has an end, the eternal life would have an end. Uh, 
even in the human law, when they punish a criminal with death, this punishment is considered eternal exclusion from society. Because some people, they argue and say, why sin that is done in, for a few years on earth will be punished eternally? In the same way, a criminal who did a crime may be in few days with sentence of death, he is eternally excluded from the society. And also, we should know that the will of the sinner, if the will of sinner is as such, then even if he live eternally, he will not change. So here, the, if God gives them a chance to live eternally, they would live eternally in sin. So the possibility of eternal sin is there. That's why this sin that could be or with the possibility to be eternal is directed to eternal God and because God actually is eternal. That's why the punishment will be eternal when God is offended. This concludes chapter 25 from the Gospel of St. Matthew. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen.